Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, April the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome back Pete Lunn, behavioural economist with the Economic and Social Research Institute, and also our own political correspondent, Jennifer Bray. And you will not be surprised to hear what we're going to be discussing. It is, of course, the government's announcement this week on its plans for easing COVID-related restrictions over the next week and indeed over the next couple of months. Uh, Pete, I'll come to you in a minute, but first, Jen, with your political analysis hat on, how did the big reveal go this week? I think actually, overall, Micheál Martin's announcement was probably one of his better ones. Um, All of his previous ones have been very doomy, obviously, because the situation was very bad in, in previous times. If you look back to Christmas and the period between December and January, there was a widespread expectation that there would be some easing of measures. And in fact, this was lined up by the government themselves. The last time that they extended level five, when they said that this month they would consider the the five kilometre travel rule and outdoor activity. So people had that expectation. And I think when he came down the steps uh, at government buildings to make his uh, announcement, he gave a speech that was a little bit more hopeful than before. And this obviously is because of the fact that we are now a certain way down the road in, in rolling out the vaccination campaign. Um, it, he was a little bit more, I suppose, giving in what he had to, to tell people. And I think that he kind of struck a good balance this time around um, in terms of his speech. Generally, I think it's pretty much exactly what people expected. Uh, I think people have been looking at the uh, case numbers and seeing that they're stubbornly high and adjusting their expectations. And I think the government knows this. Having said that, there was obviously a fraying compliance with the various different measures and a sense that the public were a little bit ahead of the government in deciding what they can and can't do, particularly in relation to outdoor activities. So the, there was a feeling in government that they had to give something, uh, even if it was small and even if it was staggered and uh, uh, done out over a phase period of time, which we saw was the case. And they and they did that. Um, so I think overall, the the reality of the situation politically was that even though in the weeks preceding this announcement, they were very much optimistic, I suppose, you know, cautiously optimistic when it came down to it um, over the weekend. And when they had that meeting on Monday with the public health officials, with the HSE, with the vaccine task force, the message was really, really clear um, that the, the government needed to proceed with extreme caution and they shouldn't do anything before the, the rest of the schools are due to reopen. And the reason for this was because the OR number is at or above one, uh, which means that obviously the virus is is spreading. Um, and also that the case numbers were too high and that the health system uh, is very fragile. And, you know, there were questions over whether it could cope with a fourth wave. And that was, they're the words that strike fear into the heart of politicians. It's the idea of a fourth wave. And after Christmas, it's the fear of being responsible for a fourth wave after what happened with the easing of restrictions uh, last December. So I think overall, uh, they struck the right balance this week. Um, they, they're they very much constrained by public health 
uh, advice. I think a big test will come in the next four weeks when they've indicated that in May they will consider personal service personal services such as hairdressers and they will consider click and collect retail and that the spectre of hospitality has been raised for I think June and July and I think that's where the really tricky decisions will come in especially if the cases are still high. And some of that of course will relate as well to the vaccine and I might come back to you with a couple of questions about that and some developments with that over the over the course of this this week as well. But maybe to you now Pete, I should have said at the outset of course that you're involved in in advising uh, Neffet on what's actually happening out in the in the population and uh, Jen mentioned uh, the possibility of fraying compliance out there. What does the data tell you about that? Well, I think as has always been the case throughout this uh, pandemic, there are actually two things one needs to consider. It isn't just compliance. It's also just the level of social activity. It's actually how much compliant social activity there is. Because you can be completely compliant and meeting a lot of people, and you can be uh, completely compliant and meeting almost no one at all. And that's exactly what we see in our data. Um, and it's easy to exaggerate the degree of social activity and the amount of non-compliance, because, of course, you don't see the people who are really behaving themselves. Um, Now, we know from our own data that about half the Irish population doesn't meet up with anybody from outside their own household in a 48-hour period. And then you've got about another quarter that only meet up with one or two individuals. And then there's quite a long tail of people who are being substantially more socially active than that. And we've seen that edge out over recent weeks. Um, So that can be compliant activity, but it's more social activity. So it does add to add to the risk. And it's also linked to the number of close contacts. So compliant activity matters as well. And we have seen that edge up fairly consistently over a kind of six week period. It's not huge, but it has gone on a gradual increase. And part of that's just driven by the weather. And part of that's probably driven by some of the mood and all of the things that we know are associated with trying to put up with level five. Um, but then you get on to the non-compliant activity, and again, you see it edging up. And the one that's the particular concern is social visits to households because they're really high risk. And what you're talking about there is an increase from about 5% of the adult population engaging in a social visit to another household, which obviously, under the regulations, they shouldn't, at the end of January. That goes up by mid-March to somewhere around 11.5% we measure it at. So it's a minority that are doing it, but it more than doubled, we estimated, over that period. And that's really high risk activity from the point of view of infection. And to give you an idea of that and the degree to which that behavior essentially is a minority putting a majority at risk is the way I would describe it. I mean, one way to think about that is that doesn't sound huge, does it? Like 5% to 11.5%. What that actually is, is approximately 200,000 adults more a day engaging in social activity in each other's homes. About 200,000. And in the context of case numbers that are stubbornly stuck at around five or 600, 200,000 indoor meetings a day is huge. Right, so that's where the real um, change in behavior, that's the largest behavior change that we could see of, over the period. And it coincided almost perfectly. Now, correlation is not causation. We, you know, we know that. But it, I mean, it coincided almost perfectly with the case numbers stalling and then getting stuck. I think those indoor social visits are a very important aspect of behaviour change over the last couple of months. And it really is important to understand that while the very large majority have remained uh, compliant and are not engaged in such visits, uh, it's a minority that have. And what I very much hope is that now, having been given a bit more freedom, and that's part, this is part of the strategy, that having been given a bit more freedom from the 12th of April, that some of those visits, if people have to be socialising that much and visiting each other, can move outside where they're substantially less risky. So it is actually possible 
that a modest lifting of restrictions that allows more outdoor activity actually lowers transmission risk if people change their behaviour and move it outside. And of course, that's a big if. So there's always a question for governments with this, isn't there? Is it, you know, do you lead or do you follow or what's the combination of the two? I was talking to somebody who was listening on the radio to the announcements on Tuesday while sitting in a park and there was uh, there was talk of uh, when football games would be allowed to resume and all around him in the park, football games were happening. And isn't there a point, I think, with these kind of regulations where more harm is done by pretending that the rules are being followed than, than having the rules there in the first place? Yes, there can be, because people respond to what they see around them. And as I've, as I've said, I mean, we, we see the people who are most socially active and least likely to be compliant, and people then respond to that. And they also are quite annoyed by the fact that they're restraining themselves from doing things when other people maybe are not. Um, and that's a disincentive fact. People, a large proportion of people are what are called conditional cooperators. They'll make sacrifices provided everyone else is doing it too. And if they see other people are not, it makes them less inclined to do it. So, yeah, there are risks there. I completely agree with that. But rather than thinking of it as either you know the government deciding and the population following or refusing to follow or trying to follow or the government following what people are doing, I mean, what I'd say is what I think they've actually got better at as the pandemic has gone on is just looking at the behavioural evidence and trying to give people some freedoms that are the ones that they are most likely to use and to enjoy using and to be able to fit into their lives. So there's a kind of halfway house between the two things you're suggesting there, Hugh, where what you're actually doing is you're just looking at the evidence and saying, look, we can give people a little more freedom. We can maybe even, as I said, reduce the chances of infection by giving them certain freedoms, given the way they are behaving now. So I wouldn't so much describe it as following them as just looking at evidence as what people are coping with, what they're managing, what their desires are, and then trying to fit a sensible plan for restraining behaviour around those facts. It is easier to do, isn't it, as the as the weather gets better? It, it strikes me that, you know, a lot of the activity that people see and are giving out about, and you see videos of, you know, crowds at the seafront or in parks and things like that, and compared to what you're describing, people meeting up in an enclosed house and being together in a, in a room for, for an hour or two at a time, it's far it's far less risky, but people get more agitated about it because they see it. Well, that's true. And one of the things that's so difficult throughout all of this is, you know, there is a lot of subtlety and complexity about transmission and the way it relates to the rules. And a lot of people are inclined to think, well, the the rules are telling us what's safe and what isn't. So if someone's breaking them, even if they're just breaking the letter of them, they're doing stuff that's unsafe. And that's annoying, especially if I'm making sacrifices and so on. Now, of course, the situation is quite a lot more subtle than that. I mean, there are vast differences between breaking some rules and breaking others in terms of the risk of infection and therefore the risk of the to the rest of us. It isn't a question of, is it safe or is it not safe? I mean, one simple example of that is, is the decision that's made over schools. I mean, of course, there's a degree of risk that's involved in schools and we're allowing children to mingle in secondary schools where there is a risk of infection. And it's a highly controlled environment. We know that and we know the rates of infection are low, but we are allowing them to do things we're not allowing adults to do. And we're doing that because in that circumstance, we think that is a risk worth taking for the education of our children because there is only so long we can keep our children at home. Um, given the damage that potentially we're doing. So it really isn't a question of, is it safe, is it not safe, and can I see a contradiction between this and that? It's more a question of what level of risk can we tolerate, given the risk of a fourth wave, and where can we tolerate it to make lives as reasonable and as okay as possible? But that is a more subtle understanding of the way the restrictions work than the kind of safe versus not safe, there are rules, you know, you break them, you don't, that often sort of, governs the public discourse, if you like. Jen, 
Uh, I want to ask you about um, vaccines. Possibly one of the more significant um, announcements on Tuesday was a change in the order in which vaccines will be allocated as they're rolled out over the next over the next three or four months, and that certain groups that were seen as as, as frontline workers are at risk in the previous system, particularly teachers and guardie and possibly childcare workers as well, are no longer as high up the list as they were, and it's going to be much more purely age-based. They'll move down the cohorts to the over 65s, the over 60s, the over 55s, and so on. It's a significant change. It seems to me to be based quite logically on what the science tells us about how much at risk certain groups are or are not at. And also, I think probably just as importantly, if not more so, making the system as simple and therefore as fast as possible. But the government has run into a bit of kind of a sticky, sticky terrain over this, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And uh, I think part of the problem is that the announcement that it would change from an age and profession based system to after a certain after a certain cohort are vaccinated to an age only um, system, it kind of came out of the blue for a lot of people. And it seems to me that a lot of the aggro politically this week was that there wasn't any proper consultation between the the various unions and the various stakeholders before this decision was made. Now, I've been digging around this all week and trying to kind of get to the bottom of what happened when and the chronology and why people are so upset there was a view expressed to me by someone uh, senior in government that perhaps one of the reasons why this was just announced as opposed to consulted and, you know, gradually uh, introduced into, into people's minds was that if the, if the government um, presented this to unions and if they presented it to stakeholders and if they had that entire dialogue beforehand, that it, there would have been holes picked apart in it. And that the the argument that we're having now about the guards, teachers, um, childcare workers, etc., that that would have meant that it wouldn't have been brought in. And the imperative was to bring it in because the overwhelming evidence was that this is the most sensible way to do it. And I went to a technical briefing on this on Tuesday, Wednesday. I can never remember what day it is. Um, but and technical briefing nowadays is actually just a fancy term for briefing with minister and officials without cameras. You know, I do have my, uh, that's a, a discussion for another day. But at that briefing, um, Karina Butler of the of the NIAC, uh, the National Immunisation Advisory Committee, she gave out the reasons for, for this system. And she was very clear and she had, you know, all the statistics to back it up. Um, and she went down through the different age groups, you know, how much more likely somebody who is 70, who is 60, who is 50, how much more likely they are, uh, to get sick, uh, to to be hospitalised, to go into intensive care, and then, of course, to die. Um, and, you know, the science is the science on that. And her view was that when people hear this and when they understand, you know, these are the reasons, they won't find themselves arguing with it. But the reality is there was a perception created politically uh, that guards, um, teachers, other people who work on a front line, you know, in that they have to be in contact with the public and they don't have a choice. They can't stay at home. They have to go out and that they would have been vaccinated beforehand. And there was a logic to that. And this came up politically um, at the parliamentary party meetings on Wednesday evening. And there was one really interesting development in the fin- in the Fine Gael one. So there was a lot of kind of upset people. You know, obviously TDs are getting it in the neck a little bit from uh, guards and teachers in their constituency and a lot of them have been flooded with complaints about this so they bring these you know issues to the parliamentary party meeting 
And Leo Varadkar Dathanish has said that he did believe that there should have been a consultation, a greater consultation with the unions uh, before this was announced. Uh, and he kind of gave the impression that it was sort of leaking as they were discussing at a cabinet, like as if that was the problem. But one of the uh, other TDs who was instrumental, actually, uh, in his bid for the leadership, John Paul Phelan, there's a chat function in the Zoom that they have in these parliamentary party meetings. You know, we, we'd probably have it here if we decided to use it. And, you know, people can talk to each other outside of the person who is talking. And in that chat function, John Paul Phelan said, we've we've scrapped the list, we've torn the list up. And the answers that are being given to this are disingenuous. And Leo Varadkar responded and said, that's not true. There was never an uh, explicit provision for guards, etc., Show me the evidence, basically. And John Paul Fielding reacted very angrily and said, basically, that he thought that the answers were tone deaf uh, and, like I said, uh, disingenuous. And I think that gives you an insight into the feeling politically about this. Um, and, you know, it's one of these things that people have been in the political system over the last 24 hours watching the teachers' unions and watching the other unions really fearful of what they were going to say, particularly in relation to those classes that are coming back I think it is on April 12th, which is not far away at all. And the worry was that they will come out and say this this move jeopardises their decision to come back. And that will be a real problem for the government because, as uh, Pete was mentioning, one of the one of the priorities that they have cut out for the last couple of months, particularly under Micheál Martin's term, was uh, school, basically, and having kids back at school. And it was a priority. Uh, and that was in the meeting that they had last Monday, one of the three priorities that were mentioned. So protecting the vulnerable and um, protecting the healthcare service and uh, education. So it's 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 a big change. Um, it's caused a lot of, I suppose, upset politically. Um, I know personally guards and teachers who are upset. I'm sure we all do. Um, but it seems to me that in the absence of one of the unions or one of the other stakeholders kind of throwing a bomb in here, it's going to go ahead. See, Pete, I mean, listening to Jen there, um, I can understand some of the the kickback here, but the, the change seems to make absolute sense to me. But of course, I'm not a teacher or a guard, uh, which which might go some way of expa- explaining that. But it strikes me it's the first big example of how we're moving from a phase, a year of the psychology and the behavioural economics of coping with COVID to the psychology and the behavioural economics of coping with the biggest vaccine rollout in the history of the country, which will bring its own pressures, I think. Yes, I think that's true. And one of the things we're doing, uh, and you'd expect this, I guess, is my group are now very, very closely monitoring vaccine hesitancy and studying it and working out what's causing and driving it and what's changing the trends over time. And at the moment, the trends are positive. I mean, the proportion of the population that says it's definitely going to get vaccinated is just steadily going up and up and up slowly but surely and it's been going it's got gone up a lot since before christmas because it's just gone steadily and, and surely and that's all that's all good news i think i think though like this conversation there's a real danger that we separate off the vaccine story from the compliance and the social activity and in a way i think that's a mistake at this time because the primary point that Philip Nolan has been trying to make this week and is absolutely vital is the interaction between the two. So the difference it makes for us to keep a lid on our social activity, to keep it down at at least the level it's at at the moment or below, so social contact no more than it is now, the difference it makes for us to do that for eight weeks from now 
compared to letting it increase now for the likelihood of a fourth wave and how substantial the fourth wave will be if it happens is enormous. And one of the things as a behavioral scientist that has been a problem throughout this entire pandemic is our inability to intuit nonlinear relationships. The very small changes can make very, very large differences. And if we make it, we're at a time now where if we make a small change in our behavior, there is a nonlinear relationship that means those case numbers, instead of edging up, will take off. And it doesn't take a huge amount of behavior change for that to happen. And then on the other side of the equation, there is another nonlinear relationship. And that nonlinear relationship is what proportion of the population have to get vaccinated for it to have a really big effect on the likelihood of people being hospitalized and dying from COVID. And there's two nonlinear relationships on either side of this balance now. And I really don't think it's got across to people quite how vital the situation we are currently in is because of the interaction between these two things. And I know that lots of people have said throughout this pandemic, we are at a crucial time at various points. I haven't, right? Because you get a boy who cried wolf problem, right? If you're every week saying you're at a crucial time, everyone stops listening to you. We really are now because we, we've got a potential end game. I mean, if we can just keep a lid on it for another eight weeks, we are in a situation where that fourth wave, even if it were to happen, would be small and wouldn't kill people. It's that close because there is an interaction between this vaccine rollout and our behavior and where exactly we're at in the case numbers at the moment. So I think now it genuinely is true. That is an absolutely crucial thing. And I don't think, I mean, Philip Nolan's tried really hard. Roland Glynn's tried really hard. I'm talking about it. More people need to be getting across that interaction and realizing that at the moment we've got the chance of bringing out, it's not fun, it's not an end game, but it's a real game changer over the next sort of eight weeks, two months. To what extent do you and your colleagues look at what's happening in other countries? Because, of course, one of the things with this this whole COVID extravaganza, but particularly with the rollout of vaccines, is we can sort of look into the future a little bit in terms of what's happening in countries that are further along with their vaccine rollout, be it Israel, our neighbours in the United Kingdom, or I'm thinking particularly of the United States, because they are seeing signs of a fourth wave in some parts of the United States in the last in the last week to two weeks or so. And it's particularly in those states that have opened up faster. They tend to be the red states rather than the blue states, though not exclusively. I mean, does that does that inform you're thinking about what's achievable or what the effects the, the effects might be of, of opening too fast or of people relaxing too fast? Uh, yes, it does. But you have to be really careful. I mean, I actually think last summer, the fact that Europe was opening up as quickly as it was and was experiencing the lower case numbers that it was led us astray. Because what actually happened and what people didn't realise was that everyone had got so frightened and their behaviour had changed so much that it took a number of weeks for them actually to come back out and start socialising. So initially, when restrictions were first lifted in Europe, what then happened was everyone went, oh, great, the case numbers aren't taking off again. This is good. And in fact, part of the problem was it took the population somewhere around, I estimate, actually eight to 12 weeks to start, to start returning towards normal levels of social activity. So in fact, we sowed the seeds of second waves way back last summer because we thought lifting the restrictions was having less effect than actually it was. It just took a longer time. So the international comparisons can lead you astray if you see things happening in one place. Say, well, look, that gives us a real indication as to what's going to happen here now. The other thing is Ireland has always been different. Uh, our time course of the disease has been different. We picked up the B117 British variant earlier than everybody else. Because we locked down earlier, 
in the very first instance and did really well in terms of our disease incidence. Actually, that meant we were always ahead of other parts of Europe and other parts of the world in the cycles of the disease. So you do have to be extremely careful making the comparison. But yes, of course you do, because it's evidence. And the key thing here and what's so difficult about managing this pandemic is getting very, very many sources of scientific evidence into the rooms where the decisions are being made to inform them. I mean, that's really the hardest thing about this pandemic. And looking at international evidence is a vital part of that, yeah. Now, you mentioned eight weeks. And if the government's vaccination plan goes to plan, um, by then, by early June, a a substantial minority of the population will have had at least one uh, one vaccination. But more importantly, all the really high-risk and vulnerable groups people over 60, people with underlying conditions, a couple of other groups, they will have been vaccinated. So even if there is, let's say for the sake of argument, a bump of some sort in the numbers in the general population of positive cases, we can realistically expect to see a significant reduction in hospital admissions, ICU admissions and deaths. Uh, Can't we? And isn't that surely going to inform, has to inform not just government policy, but the way people are going to behave as well? Yes. Now, I have to be very careful here. I'm a behavioural scientist. I I pick up a lot of the epidemiology just from colleagues that I'm talking to. It really isn't my area of expertise. But what you've just described is my understanding of the situation. And of course, a lot can then change because as people start to see that, you know, the the high risk categories are vaccinated and the risk to them is greatly reduced and the risk of hospitalisation death is greatly reduced, then understandably, they're going to become less worried about the disease and that will have a knock on effect for people's behaviour. And we do have to be careful. I mean, even as the risk reduces, if we all suddenly start doing lots and say, right, this is essentially over, it's not, it's going to take a while. But I also think, I mean, we measure public expectations. The public expectation at the moment, um, on average, is that a time window for kind of all restrictions to be lifted is nine to 12 months, and they don't expect life to return to normal until um, until 2022. That's a large majority of the population. So there isn't an unrealistic expectation in the public that suddenly we can all rush out in the summer when people get vaccinated. And the other thing, of course, that matters is the behaviour of the vaccinated um, and how much risk they take and um, how long they take after they've had the doses. It's really, really important for people to just be that little bit extra patient until it really has built up the immunity. And it takes a few weeks, a couple more weeks after the second dose before you're really in a position where you know, your, your immunity is much higher. So there are behavioural issues there that interact with people's perceived levels of risk. And we're going again into uncharted territory. So I don't know how people are going to react. All I can tell you is we're measuring it much better than we have been in other parts of the pandemic now. And we're getting really accurate measures of what people believe and what how they're behaving and trying to sort of tailor the communication and the policy to that. Jen, I think, it's only my opinion, that what's inevitable as part of this process is a kind of, are we there yet? Are we there yet from the back seat? Uh, to extend, so you hear people wondering, will they be able to go on holidays? Certainly, with you know, anywhere in Ireland, but also, no doubt, some people will be wondering if later in the summer they'll be able to travel. And the whole question of travel has come more to the forefront over the last while. And in fact, it, it led to a really very sharp spat between government departments, between ministers this week over the mandatory quarantine issue, didn't it? It did, yeah. This is the the other big issue along with the, the change to the vaccination system in terms of problems for the government this week. And that was the manda- that, that is the mandatory quarantine system. So what happened was that on Tuesday morning, just before the ministers were due to go into cabinet to discuss easing COVID-19 restrictions, um, news leaked basically, I think it was first reported in the Irish Independent, that... Um, 
43 countries were due to be added to this schedule too. So basically, this is the the schedule of high-risk countries that if you fly in from or transit through, you will have to go into mandatory hotel quarantine um, for 12 days or or just over 10 if you if you test negative. So the problem was that the, the countries on this list included France, Italy, Germany, the US, uh, other European countries, and then obviously other non-EU countries and states. And the fact that this broke while they were in cabinet discussing COVID restrictions seems to be the first issue. There were there was obviously a lot of upset about that, but there's always kind of complaints when things leak, and that's just part of the process. Um, what happened afterwards, I think, surprised a lot of people in that it was there was a, a row which was developing behind the scenes, and I think this happens an awful lot of government. There's a lot. There's so much we don't know about. But this came out um, publicly uh, when the, it emerged the Attorney General had written to the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, expressing concerns about the legality of such a move. Um, there was a couple of concerns, I think, in relation to how the health officials had drafted their recommendations and had they been fully in line with the legislation. One of the things that was mentioned to me was that they appear to have decided that they were extending this to countries with high levels of COVID, not just variants of concern, and that that was an issue Whereas I had people then in the Department of Health coming back to me and saying, well, the legislation is actually very clear. We can extend these uh, mandatory quarantine to countries where there is a high level of COVID-19, not just variants of concern. So this back and forth about the legality, but also about European citizens' right to move freely around the European Union. Um, And it came to a head, I suppose, um, in the middle of the week. And we had um, a meeting between Simon Coveney and Stephen Donnelly yesterday uh, around half 12 after leaders questions and after he um, after he gave uh, statements in the Dáil about the vaccine progress and you know there was a lot of kind of people talking about who will back down will it be Stephen Donnelly will it be Simon Coveney will Stephen win the day with his you know um, public health advice or will Simon Coveney bring in the heft of the Fine Gael big weights like him and, and Leo Varadkar. And of course, we know what happened then afterwards was that only half of those countries, um, or just under just around half of those countries were added and they did not include the European countries and they didn't include America. And it was interesting then when that was announced that the message that I got from sources in the Department of Health afterwards was very clearly this battle is not over yet. We are determined to add those countries to the list. And the reason why is because there are really concerning, there's variants of concern that are worrying them, circulating in those countries um, and that that is the reason why and we should be following public health advice. And what did other people in government like Simon Coveney or Leo Varadkar or whoever think we we were doing when we introduced mandatory hotel quarantine? This was never supposed to be just for countries outside of the EU. Mandatory hotel quarantine is for any country regardless of its location or regardless of the diplomatic sensitivities and the view on the other side amongst Coveney and, and uh, Simon Coveney and, and Leo Varadkar and other people and obviously concerns the Attorney General is this is a big deal and this is a diplomatic problem and you can't just come out and you know say you're going to do this without consulting first and without ironing out all these problems. It just struck me the level of hostility um, between the departments on, amongst people I talk to, usually when there's a row brewing and you talk to people, they try to dampen it down when they talk to you. They say, you know, oh, well, yes, it's not a row and it's actually just a discussion and you're blowing it up. But there was a huge level of hostility that I picked up. And I did wonder how much of this, in some implicit way, in the background, is a Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil thing. And how much of this, in some implicit way, in the background, not the main issues, is people expressing their frustration with Stephen Donnelly uh, uh, 
you know, probably with other things in their mind from from the last couple of months. So there's a lot there. There's a lot going on and uh, it's not over yet. So <laughs> watch this space, basically. Yeah, I mean, I can see that in some ways as well. It's also a classic example of other government departments feeling that, you know, the, the real government resides in the Department of Health and the HSE now rather than where where it should be. And we've, we've, we've seen that before. But there's also a bit of, I mean, there was an impression when they brought in this mandatory quarantine that um, quite a lot of people in government thought it was really a fig leaf, that it was bowing to public pressure, but it wasn't really as important as some people were making it out to be. But if you start, imposing mandatory quarantine on on the countries you mentioned, where huge amounts of travellers come from, well then that's no fig leaf, is it? That's no symbolic act. That's serious stuff. Very much so. And we know that the public health officials um, have been in favour all along of a more restrictive regime when it comes to international travel. And that many of them uh, on that team have expressed uh, a desire that it would apply to, if not all incoming travellers, then the vast majority of them. And there is a suspicion among some in government that this is their way of doing that. But that's politics. That's actually probably not the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is probably that they're looking at the picture internationally and across Europe. They're seeing the massive spike in cases. They're monitoring the variants and they've decided based on their own uh, analysis that this is a big risk. And to in, in the Department of Health, there's a real kind of confusion and sort of incredulity this become this big political issue they see it as this is the public health advice this makes sense we're just giving you our recommendation and we followed the process exactly as we should have but of course there's a political reality to all of this you know um and there's you know there and, and that's what we're seeing play out and that's what we've seen since day one that the the interchange between politics and public health and the power struggle between both. So one of the things that was mentioned to me as being an issue was that before this expert travel advisory group and before Ronan Glynn uh, came up with these recommendations, before they wrote the letter, basically, there should have been consultation with the Department of Foreign Affairs, Department of Enterprise, Attorney General, etc. Because once the genie's out of the bottle, it's hard to put, put it back in. But once again, people in the Department of Health say, well, why would we do that? This is the advice. It's not our job to get involved politically. It's our job to tell you what we need to do. And there's a frustration growing that once again, people in, in Department of Health feel they're picking holes. Other people are picking holes in the public health advice because it doesn't suit them politically. But if you brought it back over to the other side, they say this just is not thought true. And there are really legitimate questions like, do we have the hotel capacity? You know, that's a lot of people. I mean, Simon Coveney was talking about, you know, 20,000 people. I think it was 20,000 Irish people living in countries like France. And that is a lot of people to have coming over and going into mandatory hotel quarantine. If we didn't have the spaces, it would be a massive political controversy. So, you know, there are legitimate concerns. Um, I can see it from both sides, but... Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily think it'd be a good idea for that entire 20,000 Irish people to get in planes and be coming home over the next month. <laughs> well, that's it. I, I, in fact, I certainly hope that, that, that they're not going to be doing that. Listen, Pete, I want to, I want to go to you for, for a, a last question. I'm not going to ask you to comment on fraying relationships between uh, government departments or or government ministers. But I do, I mean, I, I do have a bit of a bee in my bonnet sometimes about the messaging from government at the moment on vaccines. Now, obviously, there have been various serious problems about the EU rollout, about the relationship with AstraZeneca, about promises made and not fulfilled. 
But the underlying reality of the vaccine story is, is it's a very good story. And if we had been told that, that we were going to be where we were even six months ago, we would have been absolutely delighted, regardless of that. And Pat Lee, he said on this podcast on Wednesday that this government will ultimately be, be judged by how efficiently it rolls out the large numbers of vaccines, which we now expect to arrive in, in the next three months. But I still feel I'm not, as a listener and a viewer, I'm not being completely trusted by the government. So it was very frustrating Stephen Donnelly had to have there was a change in the projection of the number of vaccines in April. And he basically had to have that kind of worked out of him with a screwdriver um, in, in in the doll yesterday, um, having already given the new number to the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party. I'd prefer to be treated a little bit more like a, like a grown-up than I sometimes am with these details. I can accept the fact that these numbers will go up and down and that, you know, these are not promises. These are projections which could alter. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for your view there, Hugh, and you, you raise a lot of interesting questions. Um, I particularly think what you've said about the efficacy of the vaccine and where we are at with that and relative to our expectations, how important that is, it is incredibly important to keep stressing that message. I mean, one week here or there is nothing compared to a few percentage points on how effective these vaccines are. And most of the studies that are coming out are showing not only that they're highly effective, but they're also remaining effective against these variants. And there are more. there's more work being done to try to um, improve that. I mean, of course, we don't know the complete picture yet, and it's going to vary a little bit depending which strain we're talking about. But I think that's incredibly important, and the evidence suggests it's incredibly important, because what we can see is that the people who are hesitant about taking the vaccine are the people who haven't absorbed that message. It isn't actually people who've been got at by anti-vaxxers or people who are using social media. and so. It's, it, it's interesting, actually. It's the people who haven't absorbed the basic knowledge, because we've measured this, we've tested it, it's the people who haven't absorbed the basic knowledge about how effective the vaccines are. And one of the things that's driving the gradual upward trend is that message really permeating through. For people who work in the circles that we work in, I mean, we have this tendency to think as soon as a news story breaks saying how effective these vaccines are, so, oh, all right, that's public knowledge now, we know that. Well, actually, it really, really isn't when you're talking with a mass vaccination program where you're trying to get to the whole population. There's a proportion of the population that doesn't watch the news and doesn't listen to this podcast with due respects and, you know, zone, zoned out of the COVID news a long time ago because they don't want to hear it. And, you know, they'll let it permeate through them slowly because for their own mental health and their own lifestyles, that's what they want to do. And we really need to get to those people and get across that it is, is effective and have them take the vaccine. So, I think that is a really important part of it that was part of your question. On the politics, there's no question in general, all of the evidence shows that the more open and transparent you are in dealing with uncertainty in emergency situations, the more you are trusted and the better your population then follows the advice that you give them. So, I mean, all I can say is that the behavioural science supports the view you've put to me, Hugh. Um, you wouldn't expect me to comment on any individual politicians in these circumstances. I've been in this game for long enough to know that would be a very dumb thing for me to do indeed. So I'll avoid it if that's OK with you. That's absolutely fine. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. As always, the behavioural economics support my, my my position on this issue, although a little disappointed to hear that the majority of the population doesn't listen to this podcast. I've obviously been looking <laughs> at, the, at, at, at the wrong numbers, but we will leave it there. And thanks very much indeed to Pete and to Jen for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We will be back again very soon. But until then, remember, you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until then, have a very happy Easter. 